0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who by the preaching of thine apostle Paul has caused the light of the gospel to shine throughout the world, grant we beseech thee that we, having his wonderful conversion in remembrance, may show forth our thankfulness unto thee for the same by the following of thy holy doctrine which he taught through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That is a collect for the conversion of the Apostle Paul. That day is commemorated in our calendar on January the 25th. However, it seemed to me it would be an appropriate prayer for us to begin with because uh, that is exactly what we're dealing with uh, in this section of the book of Acts that we've been discussing. Uh, As you know, Paul had gone to Jerusalem Uh, With the Jerusalem Fund, his intention was to weld together these two factions within the church, the Jewish faction and the Gentile faction. And we spent some time discussing of how Paul, sometimes being a somewhat willful individual, found himself in in a compromising position, or potentially compromising position when he got to Jerusalem. But we said that while Paul was perhaps willing to be compromised, God was not going to be compromised. As important as the gospel may have been to the Apostle Paul, it was more important to God still. And just before he was going up to the temple to make the appointed offering, we're told that God intervened, or at least circumstances intervened. But I say God because there are no such things as circumstances in the Christian life. Uh, God is the author of circumstances. And what we're told is that a riot broke out in Jerusalem. Uh, People came down from Asia, probably from Ephesus, where Paul had been for some time accusing Paul of having taken Gentiles into the temple court, which was a violation of the law, a law of the Jews, but a law, incidentally, that was recognized by the Romans. Uh, There were, I think I told you this, placards on the walls as you entered into the temple courts that said, trespassers will be not prosecuted, but executed. So it was a very serious offense to bring Gentiles into the temple courts. They could go as far as the court of the Gentiles, uh, the outer ring, but they could not go into the court of women or the court of Israel or into the courts of the holies, um, where the priests could go, the court of the priests. And then, of course, there was the holy of holies. The farthest that they could go was that outer court, the court of the Gentiles. But Paul was accused of having taken at least one Gentile, and this, of course, was not true, but this was the charge that was brought against him, but bringing at least one of those into the court of Israel. A very serious offense. And we're told that a riot broke out. Such a riot, in fact, that the Roman cohort was called out. The Roman soldiers that were garrisoned there in uh, Jerusalem were called out. We know that there was probably at least 200 soldiers that came out because we're told that there was more than one centurion, and a centurion generally commanded a company of about 100 men. So at least 200 men were brought out to break up this riot that had erupted. And the Roman soldiers seized Paul. They were taking him into the barracks to discover what this was all about when Paul spoke to the Tribune, the commanding officer, and he said, may I say something? And Paul, when he spoke to the Tribune, spoke in Greek. And that intrigued the Roman officer, because he didn't expect somebody like Paul to be able to speak Greek, and not just Greek, but good Greek. Uh, He was a very articulate man. And so he turned to Paul and he said, do you speak Greek? And Paul said, I do. And the Roman The Tribune evidently was under the impression that Paul was really not a cultured individual, but was probably a troublemaker. In fact, he assumed that he was a troublemaker that had been pursued some years before, an Egyptian who had come to Jerusalem and stirred up all kinds of trouble. And the Tribune assumed that that's who Paul was. And Paul said, no, that's that's not who I am. I'm actually a Jew. And he said, can I say something to my people? And the Tribune, uh, intrigued by this, said, well, okay. And so Paul began to speak in Aramaic. And when he began to speak in Aramaic, everybody calmed down. Paul said, I want you to listen to my defense. And we said that the Greek word is apologia. Uh, it means an apology. And so Paul begins by giving his defense. And how he does that is by telling his story. That's why I use that colict, the colic for the conversion. Paul tells the story of his conversion. And he talks about the fact that He had been raised a Jew. He was proud of his Jewish heritage. Uh, He had a clean conscience, and we'll get to that uh, today. Paul says, I was a Jew like the rest of you. And he said, I was zealous for the traditions of our ancestors. But something happened to me one day on the road to Damascus as I was going up to arrest these Christians and bring them back for trial and execution. In fact, I was deputized by the Sanhedrin itself. I was on my way up there, and lo and behold, I encountered Jesus Christ this crucified and risen Messiah. Now, up to this point, we're told, everybody was intrigued by what Paul had to say. They were fascinated by this story. Until Paul said that this same Jesus Christ, who he encountered on the road to Damascus, gave him a commission. And that commission was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And the minute that the crowd heard the word Gentiles, they broke out again. It broke out in pandemonium. It was was chaos. And the Roman Tribune just didn't understand what was happening. He probably didn't speak Aramaic necessarily. And, And if he did, he probably didn't understand all the nuances of the Jewish religious laws. And he couldn't understand why people were so upset about this word Gentile. And so we're told he immediately seized Paul, took him into the barracks. He knew that he had to get to the bottom of this. He had to figure out what Paul was all about. Was he a troublemaker? After all, it was his responsibility to maintain the peace there in the city. And so we're told that he was decided that he was going to get the truth out of Paul by torture. Now, the Romans were brutal, but they were also efficient. And so they stretched Paul out, and they were about to flog him. Now, as I said the last time, this was not simply a a beating. Paul had been beaten in the past. He'd been beaten rods on a few occasions. He had been flogged by the Jews, but this was not Jewish flogging. This was the Roman flagellum, And uh, literally, it was flagellation. It was the same flagellation that Jesus had endured just prior to his crucifixion. And it was so brutal at the hands of the Romans that oftentimes the prisoner died before they ever made it to the place of execution. So this is what they were about to do to Paul when suddenly Paul reveals So the soldier who's about to mete out the punishment, that he is a what? A Roman citizen. Now, somebody's asked the question, well, wouldn't anybody have said that they were a Roman citizen under those circumstances? Well, presumably Paul had a way of proving his citizenship. First of all, if you claimed to be a Roman citizen and you were not, that in and of itself was a violation of the law and punishable by death. So you wouldn't have done that sort of thing. And the second thing is that Paul probably carried with him some sort of documentation. Well, we would probably say something similar to a passport that proved his Roman citizenship. And it was at that point that the Roman soldier decided not to be Paul, and he went to his commanding officer and he said, what are we going to do about this? So that's what's happened. Paul is now in Roman hands, and that's what we're going to take a look at today. We started looking at this last week. We're going to buzz through that, and we're going to move on to Paul in Jewish hands. But let's just refresh our memory a little bit. We are in Acts chapter 22. We're going to pick up at verse 22. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to Acts chapter 22, verse 22. And up to this word, that is, Gentile, they listened to Paul. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, you can see it's just chaotic, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul already knew the answer to that question. Of course it was against the law to do such a thing. And that's when the Roman centurion decided that he needed to go and talk to his commanding officer. So when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. Um, Evidently, his father was a citizen. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before those who... Uh, before God and in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Don't you love that? Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify also in Rome. We said last week that up to this point, Paul had been, for almost two decades, a free man. (coughs) Going throughout the world, preaching the gospel, um, sharing the faith, establishing churches, Uh, for the most part, living a very effective life as a missionary. But we said, at this point in the book of Acts, Paul is taken prisoner by the Romans, and at least until the end of this book, Paul is held in prison. He will not be free again. Now, I said that there's been some belief on the part of a number of scholars that Paul went to Rome, he was imprisoned there temporarily, but then ultimately he was released. And he was able to go on to Spain and evangelize in other areas. That may be true, but as far as the book of Acts is concerned, Paul will be imprisoned from here to the end of the story. So Paul is in prison. And this is the beginning of that imprisonment. The section that we have before us today is a drama in three parts. First, we see Paul in the presence of the Romans. Then we see Paul in the presence of the Sanhedrin. That's Acts chapter 22 verse 30 through Acts chapter 23, verse 10, and then finally we see Paul in the presence of the Lord. And I want us to take a look at all three of these today. Paul in the presence of the Romans, Paul in the presence of the Jewish religious leaders, namely the Sanhedrin, and Paul in the presence of the Lord himself. Now Paul and the Romans. Uh, We said that the Romans last week, they had a problem. It was their responsibility to keep the peace. And Palestine, Jerusalem, was a very difficult duty station. Uh, The Jews were constantly rebelling against Roman authority. They hated the Romans. Uh, They regarded themselves as a free people, and yet the Roman presence was a reminder to them of the fact that they were not. In fact, there's this one occasion where Jesus is, is contending with the Pharisees and the scribes, and at one point they say, you know, who are you? And Jesus, you know, basically says, well, (laughs) you know who I am. And they say, no, we don't know who you are, and we don't know where you come from. And so there's this give and take between Jesus and the Pharisees, and at one point, they say, we are a free people and the children of Abraham. Now, that's interesting. And they said, we've never been the slave of anybody. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, you know they had been slaves any number of times. As a matter of fact, that's how they started out. They had been slaves where? In Egypt. And then they had been slaves of the Babylonians. They had been slaves of the Romans. They had been slaves of any number of people. They had not been free for a very long period of time. And yet that's the way they regarded themselves, as free people. And so they were constantly rebelling you know that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD. Why? Because the Romans under Titus came as a result of one of these messianic uprisings, one of these efforts to emancipate themselves, and they completely razed the city, put over 100,000 people to the sword. Those of you who have actually been to Masada, you know that many of them fled out into the wilderness to that mountaintop fortress. And tradition holds that there they committed suicide rather than submit to the Roman authorities. So they were a very contentious people and the Romans had a very difficult time maintaining the peace in Palestine and so when they saw this riot, the Tribune recognized that he had a problem and he had to get to the bottom of it. And We said that one of the ways that he was going to do this was to interrogate Paul by flogging. Paul, of course, reveals his citizenship and they decide not to do it Instead, they decide to summon the Sanhedrin because this was a religious matter and to get to the bottom of this. I pointed out last week that what we find here are the Romans functioning the way the state really should function. Now we oftentimes think of the Romans as cruel, and they were cruel, they could be cruel. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the perfect example of that. But at least on this occasion, we see the Roman authorities abiding by the letter of the law. We said that the function of the state, according to the Bible, if you read Romans chapter 13, verses one through seven, is twofold. One, the state has the responsibility to establish and maintain and administer justice. That's the first responsibility of the state according to the Bible. The second is to provide for the defense of the citizens. In this case, they would be subjects of Caesar. But that's the two-fold function of the state according to the Bible. That is not the function of the state today. Oftentimes, as I said to you last week, we put a burden on the state that the state was never intended to bear. The state does not have the responsibility, according to the Bible, that is, of providing its citizens with security, financial security. It is foreign to the Bible, this whole notion of social security. If you read through the scriptures, it's very clear that is the role of the church. It's the responsibility of the church to care for her own And truth be known, the church probably could do a better job of it than the state can. Oftentimes, we place expectations on the state that it was never intended to fulfill, and as a consequence, it can't do the job it's supposed to do particularly well. Now, this raises a question for us, and the question is, should we, as citizens, expect justice today? It's almost ironic that Paul should get justice here from the Romans. We would expect that he wouldn't get it from the Romans, he would get it from his own people, but ironically, he did get it from the state. He would not get it from his own people, but we have to ask ourselves, can we expect to get justice as Christians in the world today? We talk a great deal about justice, don't we? Justice is precious to us, and oftentimes, as Americans, we assume that we will get justice. Why? Because we're a nation of laws. I mean, what's the image of Lady Justice? She holds a scale, doesn't she? And what about her eyes? She's blindfolded, which means justice is blind. It doesn't matter who you are. There will be equal justice under the law. That's what we believe in America, right? But is it true? Is it really true that Lady Justice is blind? I don't know. I think from time to time she takes a peek. I think what you'll find if you actually take a look, because whatever the system of justice, because it is being administered by fallen, sinful human beings, you will discover that oftentimes, even though we speak of justice, justice is not necessarily something that you're guaranteed to receive. Let me give you an example from history. Uh, Back in the 1880s, the 1890s, a conflict took place in America. Not an armed conflict, but a business conflict. They were called um, the Electric Wars, or the Current Wars. And they had to do between two companies. The first was, one that I'm sure you're very familiar with today, the General Electric Company. At that time, General Electric was under the control of Thomas Edison, famous American inventor. And they were backed, Thomas Edison and all of his work, backed by J.P. Morgan. Who was one of the most powerful and, I might say, one of the most corrupt men in America in the Gilded Age? He was absolutely mercenary. But this was the advent of electricity. Uh, There was a great deal of excitement about the uh, advances that were taking place in science and technology at this point. And Thomas Edison worked with direct current. And he was really pushing to have a monopoly on the production of mass electricity in North America. And he's backed by J.P. Morgan, and they were making great strides. Their main competition, however, in the 1890s, was another company you're probably familiar with, Westinghouse. The president of this company, of course, was George Westinghouse. He was also aiming to be the number one producer of electricity in America, in North America at that time. He is supporting another inventor, a Serbian inventor by the name of Nikolai Tesla. And Tesla was an advocate of alternating current. And there was this great conflict between direct current advocates and alternating current advocates, this great conflict between Edison and Tesla, and this great conflict between J.P. Morgan and George Westinghouse. And it all boiled down to one contract in particular, a huge contract for a magnificent power station at Niagara Falls, New York. Whoever got that contract was going to be preeminent in terms of a monopoly on the production of electricity in North America. Well, J.P. Morgan knew that he had to undermine Westinghouse in some way. And because he was a powerhouse on Wall Street, he started rumors about the solvency of the Westinghouse Corporation. And Westinghouse stock plummeted. And Westinghouse had to use practically every resource that he had to fend off J.P. Morgan and Thomas Edison. But in the end, Westinghouse got the contract for Niagara Falls, which should have made them preeminent. But something happened. And fending off J.P. Morgan and General Electric, he had exhausted all of his financial resources. And J.P. Morgan knew it. And so what did Morgan do? He sued Westinghouse for patent infringement. (laughs) He said that he actually was entitled to Tesla's patents. Now there was no legitimacy to that whatsoever but he could bring the lawsuit, and Westinghouse knew that he didn't have the money to fight off J.P. Morgan. And so because he had no money, but he did have the law on his side, but he didn't have the money to fight him off, he capitulated, and he signed over Tesla's patents to Edison, J.P. Morgan, and General Electric, and G.E., at least for the next several decades, became the controller of electricity in North America. Now, there is a great example of having the law, justice, you're looking for justice, you have the law, you have right on your side, but you do not have the money to fight it off. (laughs) And if you think about it, it's very much that way today, isn't it? If you don't have the money, to make it through the legal system, oftentimes what happens? You're forced to capitulate or to settle or whatever it may be. Well, I just want us to realize as Christians that we can't always expect. Now, don't take this the wrong way. I see lawyers sitting out there, a number of you. I'm not trying to cast aspersions in any way on the legal profession. But what I am telling you is that this is just, these are just the facts. And so oftentimes we think that we're going to get justice in the world. That is not necessarily the case. Oftentimes it's not a matter of justice. Oftentimes it's a matter of winning. Paul did get justice on this occasion from the Romans, but as we are going to see, he did not get it from the Jews. So we have to be careful. As Christians, we think we're going to get justice. Well, we may, but we may not. Well, now we find Paul before the Sanhedrin. Here he is, he's before the Romans. Uh, The Roman soldier doesn't understand exactly what's going on with all of this, and so he decides to call together the Sanhedrin. It's quite clear to him that this is a matter having to do with Jewish religious issues. If you think about it, that is precisely what Pontius Pilate did with Jesus, isn't it? He did not understand, when Jesus was brought before him, what Roman laws Jesus had violated. In fact, when he interrogated, he came out to the crowd and he said, I find no fault with the man. He hasn't broken any Roman laws that I can see. But the people kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, so that in the end, what did he do? He sent him off to Herod. Herod, you're a Jew. These are Jewish questions. You deal with them. Herod looked at Jesus, examined him, and then sent him back to Pilate. He didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole you got a similar situation here. The Romans really don't know what to do with Paul. They don't understand. This has to do with Gentiles. It has to do with a, a resurrected Messiah. They don't, anything, they don't understand anything about it. So what does he do? He brings together the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and Paul is expected to stand before the Sanhedrin and to be interrogated by them. Now, as we said, the Sanhedrin is not the least bit interested in justice. This is the irony. The Sanhedrin is interested in what? One thing and one thing only. They want to get rid of Paul. They've already decided he's got to go. The only question is, how do you achieve that end? How do you achieve that end? And Paul stands then before the Sanhedrin. So let's go back and let's take a look at this again. Let's just read through these words and refresh our memory as to what is happening with Paul and the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he, that is, the tribune, Claudius Lysias, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my entire life by God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Paul's defense before the Sanhedrin is an interesting one. He starts off by saying from my earliest days in Judaism I operated according to a clear conscience. When Martin Luther, the famous reformer, stood before the Diet of Worms and was ordered to recant his quote heretical teachings do you remember what Luther said? He said, to deny one's conscience is neither right nor safe. He said, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, God help me. Everybody remembers those famous words. Here I stand, God help me. But Luther very, very clear. You've got to be true to your conscience. It's never right, it's never safe for an individual to deny what their conscience is telling them to do. Well, Paul makes it very clear from the moment that he had started off in Judaism. As a young boy, he says, I operated with a clear conscience. Now, you think about Paul's life in Judaism and you wonder to yourself, clear conscience? Even before Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus? He doesn't say, after my conversion on the road to Damascus, I operated according to a clear conscience. He said, from the earliest days of my Jewish faith, I operated according to a clear conscience. And you say, well, my goodness, Paul, you were responsible for the death of Stephen. You were going out and systematically dismantling the, the Christian communities. You were on your way up 110 miles north of Jerusalem to arrest Christians and bring them back for trial and execution at the time of your conversion, and you were operating according to a clear conscience? I think Paul would have said yes. Based on what he knew at the time, Paul was operating according to a clear conscience. What did he know? prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus? Well, he knew the traditions of his ancestors, and he was zealous for them. And as far as he could tell, these Christians were advocating a different religion. As far as he could tell, they were corrupting the traditions of his ancestors. As far as he could tell, they were proclaiming A damnable deceit, and that's not trivial swearing. It really was a damnable deceit, because as far as Paul could tell, if people embraced this, it was pulling them away from the true teaching of the Jewish faith. That's what Paul thought, and that's why he was so zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. It was not just because Paul was one of those people who had this insatiable lust for blood, and he wanted to go out and kill people. That was not the problem at all. Paul really believed in these things with all of his heart, and he was willing to lay down his life and indeed fight for them. Now, I think that's significant, if for no other reason than this. We are oftentimes told that we should always follow our conscience. How many of you have ever been taught, you should always follow your conscience? Well, I'm here to tell you, you should not always follow your conscience. (laughs) You should only follow your conscience if your conscience is wedded to the Word of God. See, there's the problem. There were many people in 1930s Nazi Germany who were following their conscience. They were convinced that Hitler and the Nazi party was doing their best to restore Germany's fortunes in the wake of the Great War. And they were operating with a clear conscience. Paul was operating with a clear conscience prior to his conversion. But once he encountered Jesus Christ, he realized how wrong he had been. This is why it is so important for us, as Christian people in particular, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Scriptures. (laughs) Because it is perfectly possible to be operating with a clear conscience and still to be violating the will of God. So the only way you can truly trust your conscience And to know that you are operating in accord with what God wills for your life is if your conscience is captive to the word of God, which is the other thing that Martin Luther said that I had deleted. He said, my mind, my conscience, is captive to the word of God. It is not right to deny one's conscience. Here I stand, God help me. His conscience was captive to the word of God. That's why he could not recant. So Paul says, I have a clear conscience, and he did. But at this point, of course, what happens is that the high priest orders that Paul be struck. They were offended by the fact that Paul said that he had a clear conscience, (laughs) especially because they assumed that Paul was doing what? Bringing Gentiles into the temple courts. And so they order that Paul should be struck. Now you know what Paul said in response to this. Paul, you could just imagine, you have to use your imagination a little bit, you can just imagine Paul turning to them and saying, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, why did Paul say that? Well, probably Paul was referring back to a passage from the book of Leviticus, which made it very clear that no one was to strike a fellow Jew on the cheek. Now, think about that for a minute, because what did Jesus say In the Sermon on the Mount, if anybody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. See, the law forbade striking a Jew on the cheek. Why? Two reasons. One is because human beings are made in the image of God. They are a reflection of God's glory. And this was especially true for the Jews because they were God's chosen people. And so the book of Leviticus said that if you strike a Jew on the cheek, it is the same thing as striking the glory of God himself. And so here is Paul, a Jew. He's made it very clear he's a Jew. He was raised as a Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had trained under Gamaliel. And he said, my conscience has been clean. And when he struck, he turns around and he reminds them that they have violated the law. So we're already seeing the Jewish religious leaders are violating their own laws. Paul got justice from the Romans, but he's not getting justice according to the law under the Jews. But how do they respond? Well, they remind Paul of the law. They remind him that in the book of Exodus it says that you are not to speak ill of your leaders. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Verse 5, and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. People have asked the question, well, why didn't Paul recognize the high priest? Well, the number of answers have been given. One is that Paul didn't care that he was the high priest, and Paul was simply being sarcastic. You can almost imagine that sort of thing, can't you? Huh, I didn't realize he was the high priest. I mean, this is one of the things, you, you do have to use your imagination when you read the scriptures. You know, texts can be read any number of ways, can't they? I mean, I can say, when I see Brian McGreevy out there, Brian McGreevy, you old sinner! Or I can say, Brian McGreevy, you old sinner. (laughs) And you see, the tone tells you the meaning. So when you're reading the passage, oftentimes you look at it, and you're reading it, and it's just sort of flat. You have to lose your imagination, and some have imagined that Paul was being sarcastic. He got slapped, and they said, you shall not speak of the high priest in such a way. And Paul, you can imagine Paul being a little sarcastic. (laughs) I didn't realize he was the high priest, the way he was talking, the way he was acting. I never realized he even was the high priest, but sorry. Some have suggested that that's what Paul was doing here. He's being sarcastic. I don't think so. I I don't think Paul was that kind of a person. I think Paul had great respect for the law. After all, that's the whole reason he was in Jerusalem. That was the whole reason he was in this predicament. That's the whole reason he was in that compromising situation, because he was trying to be obedient to the law. Others have suggested that Paul's eyesight was failing. He didn't recognize the high priest because his eyesight was failing. And there's a passage at the end of the epistle to the Galatians that indicates that. Paul says that he was signing the letter himself with large letters. We know that Paul had some sort of physical ailment. We don't know what it was, but he describes it as a thorn in the flesh. And he says on multiple occasions, at least three separate occasions, he asked God to remove that thorn in the flesh. And the Lord had responded, How? My power's made perfect in your weakness. And some people have thought that perhaps Paul was suffering from failing eyesight, some sort of eye degeneration. We don't know exactly what. And so when he talks about writing with large letters, that was because he had a scribe and he was signing himself. Could be. We don't know. It's speculation. One of the things we have to remember is that this was not a normal proceeding. Some have suggested, well, why didn't he recognize the high priest? The high priest would have been dressed in his high priest robes. Well, not necessarily. After all, they had been summoned in. This was not a traditional court proceeding. They had been summoned by the Romans, and they probably didn't know why, that is the Sanhedrin, why they were being summoned. So there's nothing to indicate that Paul would have recognized the high priest by his robes. Probably the best answer is simply this. Paul had been away from Jerusalem for a long time, for over a decade at least. And he probably didn't know who Ananias was, who the high priest was. And unless he was dressed in his high priest robes, there's nothing to indicate that Paul should have recognized him. We live in a culture in which we are so familiar to seeing the faces of our leaders. They're plastered all over the Internet, they're plastered all over the newspaper. But remember, there were no newspapers in those days. There was no news, television shows, there was nothing. And so oftentimes, people didn't recognize public figures. You could could be a high priest and walk through the streets and people would not necessarily have recognized you unless you had an entourage with you. At any rate, I don't think there's any reason to doubt the fact that Paul did not recognize the high priest. And so Paul apologizes. He said, look, I recognize and I'm not supposed to speak ill of the people, and therefore I apologize for that. I think that's so powerful. Here on the one hand, you have the leaders whose job it is to uphold the law, and they what? They violate it. And here is a man who's accused of breaking the law, and what he does is he upholds it and shows respect, even for corrupt leaders. You know, we're supposed to do that too as citizens. You may not necessarily like who's in the White House at any given time, some people may be thrilled with who's in the White House right now. Others were thrilled with the last administration. But as Christians, our job is to show respect for those who have been appointed as leaders over us. Doesn't necessarily mean that you have to vote for them, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to support their policies, but it does mean that we show respect for the office, and Paul certainly did that. Now, at this point, we're told, and this is really where it gets very interesting. At this point, as Paul's giving his defense, he recognizes that he's got a divided audience. Look at verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the councils, Brother, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became so violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. I always imagine Paul sort of pulling the key on a grenade and rolling it into the room and then standing back to see what's going to happen. And what happened was an explosion. The Sanhedrin was made up of two groups. The Pharisees on the one hand and the Sadducees on the other. And they were two groups that represented the two groups that we oftentimes see in our society today. The revisionists and the orthodox. The Pharisees are what we would call the orthodox. In fact, I would go so far as to describe them as fundamentalists, legalists. They believed every bit of the law. And as you know, developed whole sorts of interpretations of the law to make sure that you weren't in violation of it. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the liberals of their day. They were the revisionists. They didn't believe a whole lot of anything. In fact, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They denied the rest of it. So you've got the conservatives on one end of the spectrum. You've got the liberals on the other end of the spectrum. And they're both there. And up to this point, they're both in opposition to Paul. But he recognizes that they don't get along. Politics makes strange bedfellows. And Paul realized that here. And so he pulls the key on the grenade and rolls it into the room. He says, if the truth be known, yes, you've heard my whole defense, but if the truth be known, if you really want to boil it down to one little issue, why I'm on trial here, why my life is in jeopardy, I'll tell you what it is. It has to do with the resurrection of the dead. Kaboom! (laughs) Because as Luke says, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. And you can almost see with the Pharisees saying, well, that's true. We believe in the, in the resurrection, too. And the Sadducees saying, oh, now, don't get into that. We don't believe in that. And before long, these two are going at it, hammer and tongue, and Paul is just sort of standing back and watching it. It's a powerful picture of what we're facing. What did Paul mean when he said, I'm on trial for the resurrection? Well, turn back to John chapter 11 for just a second, and let me show you. And I want to show you how this applies to our world today. John chapter 11, this is a familiar story. It's the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You all know the story. Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, lived in the village of Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus had frequently stopped at their house as he was traveling back and forth between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. He was close to this family. And we're told that at one point Lazarus became sick, was near death. The sisters sent for Jesus to come. They knew that he was a great healer. They'd seen him perform miracles. They asked him to come and heal their brother Lazarus. And we're told that Jesus decided to stay where he was for several days. So that by the time he and his disciples arrived in Bethany, Lazarus was dead. Dead and buried in fact he'd been in the grave for several days and this is where we pick up the narrative john chapter 11 verse 17 now when jesus came he found that lazarus had already been in the tomb four days bethany was near jerusalem about two miles off and many of the jews had come to martha and mary to console them concerning their brother so when martha heard that jesus was coming she went and met him but mary remained seated in the house And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. When Jews thought about the resurrection of the dead, they believed in it, at least the Pharisees did. But when they thought about the resurrection, the word resurrection implied a general resurrection at the end of time. The Jews that believed in life after death believed that there would be a general resurrection at the end of the age when the Messiah appeared. That's one of the reasons why nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead, because no Jew expected that the resurrection of an individual would take place at this point in history. Only at the end of the age would everybody be resurrected. That's why Jesus' resurrection took everybody, including the disciples, completely by surprise. That was not what they were expecting according to their theology. So when Paul says, I'm on trial for the resurrection, most of the Pharisees thought that's what he's talking about, the resurrection at the end of the age. And I think that's what Paul was talking about, but not just that. He was also talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Yes, that was the grounding of his hope, but he was talking about something else. He was saying, basically, I'm on trial here because I believe in the supernatural. I believe that God is capable of doing all things and doing all things well. I believe that God can raise people at the end of the age, but I also believe that God can raise people from the dead in the here and now, and that is precisely what he's done with Jesus Christ. Paul was saying, I'm on trial because I believe in God, and some of you believe that this life is all there is. Now, if you think about it, that is very much where we are today, isn't it? We are living in an age where the great conflict seems to lie between those who believe in the supernatural world and those who believe that this world, the natural world, is really all there is. And oftentimes we are going to find, particularly at the dawn of the 21st century, in the wake of the new atheism and so forth, that this is what we are on trial for. You either believe and are therefore living for the life of the world to come, or you are living for this life, because you believe this is all there really is. I told you before that one of the things that's so powerful about the book of Acts is the book of Acts is not just a record of the early church. It's not just a book about history. It is a blueprint for ministry today. And one of the things that strikes me as we are Christians at the dawn of the 21st century is that many of the things that you and I are contending with as believers in this age are precisely the same things that Paul dealt with in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. What you and I are contending with in a post-Christian context, and by the way, that's what we're living in, we are living in a post-Christian context. If you think you are living in a Christian nation, I am here to disabuse you of that idea. We are living in a cut flower society, and you've heard me say what a cut flower society is before. Cut flowers are magnificent, they are beautiful, but the problem is they're dead. They've been cut off from their life source, and as a consequence, their beauty fades. What happens? The petals begin to fall. And let me tell you that is precisely what has happened in American society today. We have separated ourselves, severed ourselves from our Christian heritage, and we are living on borrowed time, and we are beginning to see the petals fall. So that is a post-Christian context. Paul was living in a pre-Christian, Greco-Roman culture, and contending with precisely the same things we are contending with. And so we need to take a look at Paul's life and say, well, how did Paul deal with that? How did he minister in that kind of skeptical, unbelieving age, and if he did it well and effectively, and the situation is so similar to our own, how do we take what Paul did and apply it to our own lives and our own witness, that's the question. And I think we are still dealing with Sadducees and Pharisees. And you know what I find interesting? is that Jesus didn't get along with either of them. He didn't get along with the fundamentalists, the legalists on the one end, and he didn't get along with the liberals, the unbelievers on the other either. Jesus somehow found a generous orthodoxy in the middle. And as Christians, that's what we have to do. We have to speak the truth, as Brian said yesterday in his Lenten lecture, we have to speak the truth, but we have to speak the truth in love. There are a lot of conservatives who speak the truth, but it certainly isn't in love. And there are a lot of liberals who will sing about love, but they won't speak the truth. And as Christians, we have to find that generous orthodoxy somewhere in the middle. That's what Jesus found. But that's exactly what we're living with, isn't it? We are living with this conflict between those who believe in the supernatural and those who believe in only the natural world. I think this is why there is a perceived conflict, and I use that word perceived intentionally. I think that's one of the reasons why there is a perceived conflict in our day and age between science and faith. You know, Stephen Hawking died yesterday, regarded by many people as the greatest scientist of our age. 67 years old, there's no doubt about the fact that he was a heroic individual, he was a brilliant mind. But it's interesting to note that he held the chair, the same chair at Cambridge University that Isaac Newton held. Isaac Newton, of course, is the man who developed, or at least defined, the law of gravity and wrote what is considered to be perhaps the greatest scientific work ever written, the Principia Mathematica. And what is interesting is that when Newton looked at the world, When he looked at the laws in nature, he came to the conclusion that there was a God. Stephen Hawking, in his most recent book, The Grand Design, looked at those same things and came to the conclusion that there was no God. And there's the conflict, my friends. We can look at the same things and come to two radically different conclusions. Now, I know there's a question coming up. Go ahead, ask the question. Well, one of the things that I think we need to understand, and this is the point that I want to make, is that science as a discipline is neutral. You could be a scientist and believe in God, study the same things and come to the conclusion that there is a deity. That's what Isaac Newton did. You can look at science, you can look at the natural world, and come to the conclusion that there isn't, which tells us that science, when it comes to these matters, is a neutral discipline. Now the problem is our world says no. Why does our world say no? About 30 years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote on this subject, and he said it is because since the Enlightenment, we have drawn a line of despair. That's the way he described it, a line of despair, isn't that interesting? He said everything above the line of despair is subject to rational discourse. Everything below the line of despair is not subject to rational discourse. Now, before that, everything in nature and in the world was subject to rational discourse. Let's let's take a look at its merits, let's take a look at its demerits, and let's make a decision on the basis of reason. But as a consequence of the 18th century enlightenment, he said there was this line of despair, and everything in the natural world, everything in the natural world was subject to investigation by reason. Everything that was supernatural was below the line and therefore not subject to rational investigation. And it said, as a consequence, as science has advanced over the course of the past century, doing great things in terms of technology and medicine, we put a man on the moon. How many of you have smartphones? Do you realize that you have more technology in your smartphone than NASA did when it put a man on the moon? You have more advanced technology in that little device than NASA had when it put a man on the moon. And as a consequence of the advance of science, science has come to the conclusion that the only things that are real are those things that are above the line. Anything below the line, well, that's not real. That's the realm of faith. And what is faith? Faith is believing in something when you have no evidence. That's exactly what Paul was dealing with, wasn't it? Those who believed in a supernatural world, those who believed that this world was all there is. And this is the perceived conflict that we see in science and faith today. And I want to talk a little bit about this for just a minute because it's very important, I think. I have a daughter right now who's in a school that shall remain nameless. But her math te- or science teacher excuse me, has revealed to her, that, to the whole class, that he's an atheist. And he's proceeded to give them good reasons why he is an atheist and why they should give up their faith and she's struggling with that. She's 13 years old. Listen to this definition by the National Science Teachers Association. This is how the National Science Teachers Association defines science. Now listen carefully to it. Science is a method of explaining the natural world. Well, that's not controversial. Of course it is. It assumes That's very important, I want to come back to that word. It assumes the universe operates according to regularities, that through systematic investigation we can understand these regularities. The methodology of science emphasizes the logical testing of alternate explanations of natural phenomenon against empirical data. Because, this is the part I want you to hear, because science is limited to explaining the natural world by means of natural processes. It cannot use supernatural causation in its explanations. Similarly, science is precluded from making statements about supernatural forces because these are outside its provenance. Science has increased our knowledge because of the search for natural causes. What is science? According to this definition, science is that discipline which seeks to understand the world in terms of natural causes. If anything that is supernatural is brought in, it ceases to be science. You understand that? Now here's the problem. Because science, as I said, has made so many advances over the course of the past 20th century, people think that science therefore has all the answers. And unless it can be tested by science, by your senses, See, touch, hear, investigate. If you cannot do that, therefore, whatever it is that you believe is not real. Now, what I find very interesting here is that this definition says, science assumes the universe operates according to regularities. It has to assume that, otherwise, it would not be subject to investigation, would it? (laughs) The tragedy is, science acknowledges, or assumes, Now, when you assume something, isn't that an act of faith? I mean, if if Bill Warlick borrows $5 from me, I assume he will give it back. I'm acting on faith. Now, whether or not my faith is well-grounded or not is another matter, but it is a matter of faith. Science operates on faith in the same way that religion does. Make no bones about it. But it assumes that the universe operates according to regularities, according to laws. If the universe did not have regularities, there would be no way for us to expect, if we did X, we would get Y. But here's what's interesting. If the universe is governed by laws, the laws of physics, Doesn't that imply that there must be a lawgiver? So what we're trying to do here is, we're not trying to, what oftentimes happens in the academy is they seek to drive a wedge between scientific faith and religious faith. And I think that it's a wedge that does not need to exist and should not exist at all. There is a difference, ladies and gentlemen, between agency and mechanism. But it is precisely this kind of definition that has led to the new atheism. To people like Richard Dawkins. You know, They took out a campaign on buses in Oxford, in Oxford the city of Oxford, around the university, that had this on the side of them. There is probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. And they've done that on the basis of what? Science. Science has pushed God out of the picture. He's no longer required. My daughter came and she said, well, Dad, I don't understand all of this. She said, where does science fit in with religion? And I, the only way I knew how to describe it is something that John Lennox gave me on one occasion. He's an Oxford mathematician. I'm gonna show you a video with him in just a second. If you'll hang in there with me, give me a couple extra minutes, a little bit of grace today. I said, honey, If I come in the house and I see a tea kettle and water boiling on the stove and I ask the question, why is the water boiling? And your mother turns to me and she said, well there's a gas flame and the gas flame is conducting heat through the bottom of that copper kettle. And at so many feet above sea level, at so many BTUs, this agitates the water molecules and that's why the water is boiling there's going to be a fight in the house. Now of course, that is an explanation as to why the water's boiling. I come in the house and I say, why is the water boiling? She gives me that explanation. That is a scientific, scientific explanation as to why the water is boiling. But of course, what I'm really looking for is, the water's boiling because I'm about to make a cup of tea. Would you like one? Now there's the difference, you see, between agency and mechanism. Science explains to us how things work. It does not answer the major questions why. It cannot answer the questions that every child asks. Why am I here? Do I have value? What is my purpose in life? How is it all going to end? If you're sitting in a baseball stadium and you're not paying attention, and a ball flies over the right field wall, and everybody stands up and cheers. And you say, what happened? And you say, it was a home run. You say, well, who hit the ball? And they say, well, the bat. Uh. Well, that's correct. The bat was the mechanism. But what you're really looking for is, who is the batter? That's the agent, you see. But we've driven a wedge between these two things, between mechanism and agency. There's a wonderful book, if you're really interested in studying this in greater depth, it's called Where the Conflict Really Lies, Science, Religion, and Naturalism. It's by Alvin Plantinga, he's probably the foremost philosopher in the world today. And What he points out is that there is a thing called methodological naturalism. When a scientist goes in his laboratory, yes, he's looking for natural explanations but that methodological naturalism should not bleed into philosophical naturalism. Methodological naturalism says we're looking for natural explanations. Philosophical naturalism says natural explanations are the only explanations. And there's a difference between the two. Let me show you a great illustration of this. Now, I hope this is going to work. I am, For all this talk about science, I am not a technological expert. But this is a video, it's about six minutes long, if you can hang in there with me. This is Dr. John Lennox, he is the professor of mathematics and the philosophy of science at Oxford University. I brought him to Mere Anglicanism a few years back. And he's being asked about Stephen Hawking, and I want you to listen to what he has to say and how scientists work oftentimes in the academy today. Not all of them, he's obviously a scientist and a Christian. But he's commenting on Stephen Hawking. Well, no, just relax. Let us have faith. Well, yes. I know we don't have much faith in the signs, do we? Here we go. Uh, the quote is
1: made Hawking, and I'm going to give my best memory <laughs> of uh, this, because, because it's a law like magic, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. And then I think there was an identity, don't need God, the <laughs> universe. This is a little bit of a retraction because David Hawking in the past had a little bit of an open door about this. He did. He left the question open at the end of the mind itself. But I'm not sure maybe it's that quotation that he's just made that was the motivation for me writing the book. I was shown that just before Hawking's book appeared. And asked by a national newspaper and I was so The Because there is a law of gravity, the universe cannot create itself and nothing. They thought, come on. That's a flat contradiction. Because there is a law of gravity, that is because there is something, the universe creates itself from nothing. I mean that's a flat contradiction. And then I thought, well, What are we going to do? Because there is a law of gravity, You doesn't mean to say because there is gravity and it seems to me there that we've become a victim of uh, thinking that we've become a little bit popular in academic circles that laws can create things which is nonsense of course unfortunately the financial crisis came about that people thought that the laws in that that having create money but can't create anything at all more seriously that's still in that sentence the universe will create itself If I say X creates Y, (laughs) what does one mean? Well, if I've got X, it will produce Y. So if I say if X creates X, what does that mean? It means if I've got X, it will produce X. And in the book, I just put, as it came out of the film, I say, well, that's just pretty, the nonsense remains nonsense, isn't Mm -hmm. it's broken by. uh, but uh I heard what, heard. The day. Yes, I what people don't realise is that here's Hawkins, he's a brilliant famous scientist. He's just ahead of me a in the papers. I remember it very well. I have no quibble with a science. But what he teaches teach is the problem. And it reminds me of something that's very important in this area, like the this statements of scientists and all these statements of scientists. But the trouble is because we've got authority People think this is an authority to state the science and that what the soul produces is the universe. He hasn't. He's given a statement that there's three distinct levels of contradiction but within it. That's not a very good start. Mm. Mm. The, the essence of what Hawking is saying is that nothing can produce everything, but yeah. you know, they don't really mean nothing by like that. No, they don't really mean that be the kind of acceptance or something. Yeah. Yeah. people writing endless the and getting something for nothing, and to do it they have to redefine nothing. They have not solved the question. They are. from the Christian point of view, the question is solved Because there wasn't nothing, there was God, his non-physical, God and spirit, and he caused the to be. what did he do? That makes perfect sense. Wow, <laughs> uh, and this
0: is <laughs> uh, again the book you get the impression, don't you? I had the privilege of getting to know um, John Lennox some years ago. He came from mere Anglicanism. And he was just absolutely brilliant. And I watched him debate Richard Dawkins, the world's foremost atheist. And at one point, Dawkins got very belittling. And he turned to John Lennox and he said, The problem with you theists, he said. I'll save it. He said, The problem with you theists, he says, is that you have a faith in God. He said because Christian, how did he put it exactly? He said, faith in God is simply for people who are afraid of the dark. That's what he said. he said, he said, you have faith because you're afraid of the dark. And John Lennox, without missing a beat, turned to him and he said, well I think atheism is a faith for those who are afraid of the light. Uh, He didn't say much at all to that. Um, I'm going to take that off so you don't have to look at the screen. The point I want you to understand is that what Paul was contending with in the first century is exactly what we're dealing with in the 21st century. You either believe that there is a God and that this world has meaning and your life has value and this life is not all there is, or like the Sadducees, which Paul was contending with as well, you believe that this life is all there is. Life is meaningless, there is no purpose, and it's all going to end in death. Now if you believe that life does have value and purpose, that will inevitably, or it should at least, affect the way you live your life. And that's the way Paul lived, for the hope of the world to come. And the question is, how are we as Christians going to live our lives? If we live as practical atheists, that this world is all there is, we put all of our energy, all of our efforts, all of our fears, our dreams, our aspirations into this life, why should those who are unbelievers be in any way attracted to Christianity? So what Paul dealt with in the first century when he stood there expecting justice but didn't get it is exactly what we're dealing with in the 21st century. Whether you're 82 or whether you're a 13 year old girl, In a science class, we're all contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. And the point of these classes is to equip you. The point of all that we do in terms of Christian education at St. Philip's, whether it's the C.S. Lewis class or whether it's these Bible studies or whatever it is, is to equip you to live out the faith and to reveal to a hopeless world the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus because of the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that we are not left in the dark as to how we should contend for the faith. We thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul. And it's comforting to know that what he dealt with 2,000 years ago is exactly what we contend with today. Grant us the grace and the courage, Lord, to live as a people of hope, to live for the life of the world to come, to remember that because this life is not all there is, we can live with confidence, with hope, with courage. And if necessary, Lord, give us the strength to stand against the unbelief. For it is the only hope that this weary old world has. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being so patient with me. Um, We went a little off script today, but important. (laughs)